Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we are honored to have five members of the Endurance 22 expedition. After an unsuccessful attempt in 2019, this new expedition was assembled in 2022 to locate Ernest Shackleton's famous lost ship, Endurance, which sank in the Weddell Sea in Antarctica in 1915 and led to what many scholars and explorers have hailed as the greatest survival story of all time. For over a century, the location and condition of Endurance have remained a mystery, with many claiming it to be the most difficult shipwreck in history to find due to the harsh polar climate. But on March 5, 2022, Against all odds, the Endurance 22 expedition was successful in locating Shackleton's sunken vessel, and headlines of Endurance stunned the world once again. For more details about Shackleton's expedition, you can listen to Episode 3 of the Explorer's Roundtable, or watch my lecture on YouTube titled Shackleton's Expedition Diary. I also highly recommend reading Alfred Lansing's classic book, Endurance. I have to admit, I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time, I remember waking up last March and being stunned by the announcement of the discovery. It was just extraordinary. So guys, thank you for taking the time to join us here tonight at the Roundtable to share your story in commemoration of the one-year anniversary. To start, if each of you could just briefly introduce yourself and give your name and what your role and contribution was to the Endurance 22 expedition. Uh, well, Donald Lamont, I, I was a member of the diplomatic service and served in the Falkland Islands and then kind of became involved with uh, Antarctic matters uh, and uh, chairman of the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust, uh, which had the opportunity to kind of pull together kind of the elements that made up uh, a successful expedition. Okay, I'm John Shears. I was the expedition leader for Genesis Two. So my background is I spent many years, 25 years working at British Antarctic Survey and now run my own uh, polar expedition or consultancy company, Shears Polar Limited. Uh, and yeah, working on both the first expedition to find endurance, the Weddell Sea Expedition in 2019, expedition leader on that, and then expedition leader on endurance 22. So that's me. Uh, my name's Vincent Brown. I'm an archaeologist. I was the Triton Fellow in Maritime Archaeology at St. Peter's College, University of Oxford, all my professional life. Now retired, I'm a trustee of the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. I was director of exploration of both searches for the endurance, and I've been with the project since the moment of inception 10 years ago. Okay, um, I'm Nico Vassal, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a subsea engineer. So uh, I'm working for the, a company called Deep Ocean Search, which is personalized to, uh, uh, to work in uh, ultra deep water. Uh, I have been the subsea project manager for the expedition, so I conducted all subsea engineering and led all underwater uh, operations. Yeah, I'm Tim Jacob. I'm the director of the travel programs at Rebeach the World, which is a global education nonprofit based in New York. I was the onboard education and outreach coordinator and led the virtual exchange between the expedition and K through 12 school kids and other learning communities all around the world. Wonderful. Now, when did you each first become interested in Shackleton and the Endurance Expedition? Was your interest sparked during childhood, adulthood? Was it a book you read or a film you watched? I'm curious how you each became drawn to the subject. Well, 
I think, despite the fact that I'm from Scotland, which is kind of near the, the other polar region, I think it came more in kind of adulthood. Um, and different jobs that I had uh, as a diplomat brought me close to Antarctic uh, Antarctic matters and kind of and therefore with with the people who have enthusiasm uh, about Antarctica today and about Antarctic history. Uh, and so kind of, you know, in a way that that built up and, and this opportunity came along. And it is, you know, if you like, an unparalleled opportunity, which shows, uh, uh, you know, honoured to, uh, to undertake. John, how about you? Okay, so uh, I started uh, expeditions when I was still at school. I did a thing in the UK called the Duke of Edinburgh's Award. So I did my gold award and for that we did uh, an expedition. And uh, I went to Wales. I remember it was very cold, wintry, very icy. And that gave me a taste for, for like cold weather expeditions. Um, I did Drumphy University, did more expeditions there. And then just as I was writing up my PhD, I saw an advert for the British Antarctic Survey. And I joined British Antarctic Survey in 1990. I first went to Antarctica in 1990 uh, on, a, on a ship which is more we're talking about, the John Biscoe. And the John Biscoe sailed past Elephant Island on its way to a British station in the Antarctic Peninsula called Wathera. And that's, I suppose, you know, the first real um, connection I had with uh, Shackleton and the Endurance. And then when I was at Bass, there were many, uh, well, it's not many, but several proposals in the past to look for the Endurance. And uh, I would be called in on each one to give advice uh, about them. Um, but Really, I only really took, talk, took off when Donald called me. So I just set up the company in 2017, and uh, Donald didn't know how to get hold of me. And he found up he found up the Scott Polar Research Institute, and they said, "Well, John's left. He set up his company." And uh, Donald phoned me, and that's how it all started. They didn't have any clients for the company. Uh, I just set it up, and uh, yeah, and the rest is history. And Mitson, how about you? How did you first become interested in this history with Shackleton and endurance? Yeah, it's a little bit personal. Um, I come from the Falkland Islands, and Shackleton was in the Falklands three times, and during one of his visits, at least, he stayed with my great-great-grandfather, who ran a boarding establishment on the waterfront called The First and Last, and we still have the visitor's book, and I found their signatures in it. Um, So I I was kind of weaned on Shackleton, and later, when I was about nine or ten, I was given this book here called Sir Ernest Shackleton. It was a Sunday school prize book, and I actually read it. Uh, and then in the 60s, I read Lansing's great book about the endurance. And then 10 years ago, I was with a friend. It was his idea, not mine. He he was the one who instigated the whole idea of searching for the ship. And as John just said, the rest is history. Nico, how about you? Well, uh, on my side, I mainly came to the Shackleton tree uh, by um, story, sorry, by starting to identify, identify a way to locate his vessel since 2016. And Tim, where did your interest begin? Well, within this this group of, of heavy hitters of the polar experts, I am just the enthusiastic amateur. Uh, my my interest isn't in polar regions in particular, but when this opportunity, uh, starting way back in 2019, came up to sort of raise awareness in especially U.S. school children 
around Shackleton and, and polar history and some of this amazing uh, early uh, exploration of Antarctica. Uh, just read everything I possibly could, uh, still reading amazing things and learning from this group and trying to make uh, Shackleton and his story and the Antarctic environment, especially the Weddell Sea, really relevant to uh, a new generation of young people who may not have any personal connection uh, to that story or that place. Can you tell us a little bit about the 2019 expedition and how it sort of set the stage for Endurance 22 a few years later? I had, um, I, I, we may separately go into the nature of the trust and how that started, but that can come later. Uh, but um, because of the things that, that the trust have been doing, I started getting emails uh, about uh, a Shackleton expedition. It was first, I think, called Shackleton rather than Endurance. And I didn't know who these emails were from. So um, I kind of said to Mency, kind of um, as a trustee of, of the trust, uh, kind of, can you take me through who these people are? And uh, So we sat down for coffee kind of in uh, in London Um I think from your lectures, Menson, you do sit down for coffee with people and ideas come from that. So this was another one. And we went through the list and I said, but is there, who here knows anything about Antarctica? Uh, And the answer was no one. So I suggested that maybe if you're planning an expedition to Antarctica, it's quite good to have someone who knows something about Antarctica and expeditions or activities there. Uh, Then the question was, so who? Um, and uh, I thought John Shears. Um, what I knew of, of John's knowledge of Antarctica logistics, etc., um, I thought the right man for the slot. And so then came the phone call uh, that John's referred to, you know, uh, out of the blue, as far as John was concerned. We hadn't seen each other for a while. I'm not sure we swapped Christmas cards or anything, but, you know, we'd had contact in the past. Uh, and so, kind of very quickly, but I'll hand over to John. Kind of, he uh, he was at a meeting in in London about uh, going off and and finding uh, an icebreaker. I can opt out of the story because I continued going to the meetings purely uh, to enjoy the coffee and biscuits uh, until they decided I was um, having too much coffee and too many biscuits, and they kind of wrapped up the uh, the committee. Uh, but my role was, if anything, was at that stage through, throughout the preparations was um, uh, was liaising with the um, Shackleton family, um, just keeping them in the picture of what uh, was happening. But I had no substantive involvement, and the trust uh, the, that we'll come to later was not involved in in that expedition. That's my story. So I get the call from Donald May two thousand seventeen. Um, just briefly explain it, that all these characters seem to come up with Ocean Infinity, uh, interested in going to search for Shepparton's endurance. Uh, yeah, as I said before, I've been involved in a number of different projects to search for the search for the wreck, which had come across my desk when I was at Bajan Chartered Survey. So I now running my own company, and uh, of course, Nicky for clients. So, uh, so I agreed to go. Uh, I'm asked to give a presentation. Um, I'm actually very negative on the presentation because it is incredibly difficult to, uh, and it's been called the, uh, the most difficult shipwreck search on the planet, uh, looking for endurance. Uh, so, uh, I knew, I knew it was going to be a very, very tough expedition to run. Uh, I went there, um, was speaking for about, I suppose, 10 minutes 
And the, the chairman of the meeting said, uh, well, I think we've heard enough, John. So I thought, I thought that's it. I thought it was time for me to pick up my notes. And I was actually about to get up and go out of the room. Uh, I thought I'd been dismissed. And uh, the chairman said, no, sit down, John. Um, we'd like you to come to the project meeting. First, our first project meeting next week. So one of my shortest job interviews ever. <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, I was. And my first task was to find the ship. So uh, I went to uh, I went to Russia to look at Russian icebreakers. I went to Sweden, uh, discussed things with colleagues in Germany, and in the end, went to South Africa uh, with a colleague called uh, George Horsington, and that's where we saw the SA Agulhas two for the first time. And that is when we met Captain Knowledge Bengu. He was the captain for both the World Sea Expedition and the Endurance 22 Expedition. And as soon as I saw the Agulhas 2, I knew that that was the absolutely ideal uh, logistics ship for us. Um, I was I was pretty certain then that she would get us to the search for a pension. Um, so that was a, uh, uh, yeah, one of my you know, big first jobs was to sort the ship out. And uh, yeah, we... we we they said okay, um, uh, came up trumps with the Agulhas too. She's an absolutely fantastic ship. So that's how I started. From my understanding, finding where to search for endurance wasn't the problem because Frank Worsley, the ship's captain, had logged the coordinates shortly after the vessel sank back in 1915. The main obstacle was the ice. Uh, the 2019 expedition made it to the site, but even with all the sophisticated technology on board. Your ship became trapped in the ice, just like Endurance had been over a century before. Were you all nervous about the situation? Did it inspire reflection about what Shackleton and his men would have felt and gone through? Yeah, I don't think there's anybody on the ship. Well, the team, we didn't think what it would be like for Shackleton years before. How could we not? There we were, this, this white environment, looking at the flows, and the thought that they'd actually survived for so many months on the ice and then had to make that traverse to Elephant Island and so you know it, it just is the most incredible escape story ever 28 men went in and it shouldn't have happened but 28 men came out but let's go back to the first part of your question yeah so the, the after um, a, a friend and colleague of ours first conceived the idea of this search he asked myself to um to try and find the wreck, in other words, put together a search box. And another very close colleague of mine, a guy called John Kingsford, who I must mention, uh, who is the CEO of a great company called DOS, he was tasked with putting together the, the hardware. And for a long time, he and I worked together very, very intensely. I went into the archives to try and find out uh, where the ship went down. It wasn't quite as simple as you implied, because yes, indeed, the captain did leave us a set of coordinates, and at that stage, I, like everybody else, imagined that those coordinates were what's called an observed position, that is say, taken with the sextant. In fact, they were nothing of the kind. It was an estimated position. Um, so I went through all the diaries trying to work out how best to do this. And in the end, I didn't take so much Worsley's position on the day it sank. I took his position on the day after the ship sank because I knew I could depend on that decision because on that day he had good clear vision of the, of the sun to get his snap and that gave me my lines of latitude. Longitude was a much bigger problem because they were having problems with their chronometers uh, but in the end the wreck was found just over four 
uh, nautical miles away from where Wellesley said it was, which is pretty good going. Yeah, if I just chip in on, on something yeah, that John said, and, but it ties in with what Menz has been saying. I mean, it, it is what John, I remember it at the meetings where I was uh, kind of sitting as an observer pretty well. Uh, John would, would consistently say, ice, ice, ice. I mean, the ice was a problem. Now, John has kind of expressed confidence now uh, that he would get the ship uh, to the right side. Uh, I have had, um, and, and he did. <laughs> but uh, I have had email relatively recently from a very experienced captain operating in Antarctica who has asked for a professional uh, opinion before the Weddellsea expedition, uh, and he said it can't be done. Yeah, you, you will not get there. Uh, it is an impossible task. So the difficulty of all of the what these guys uh, have uh, have done is, uh, is by no means to be underestimated. I agree with Donald. I mean, I... My first reaction when the idea first came up 10 years ago, I actually tried to talk the guy out of it. You say it's beneath the perennial pack of the Weddell Sea. It's, it's in very, very deep water. The technology's not ready for this one. I mean, thank God he didn't listen to me. <laughs> How did the expedition in 2022 all come about? Who put it together, assembled the team, raised the funds? Yeah, I'll start in the middle and then other people can kind of, because others have more continuity maybe. Uh, but uh, the trust, because kind of now the trust kind of comes into the picture. We had uh, got hold of funding um, thanks to kind of medicine and medicine's contacts uh, for a search for German warships um, off the Falkland Islands, which were sunk in the First World War. Uh, we found the kind of uh, main ship, the Scharnhorst, um, there was a documentary made, uh, we sold that for what then we thought was a lot of money, um, and I was kind of um, sitting at home, uh, minding my own business and thinking, haven't we done well, what are we going to do uh, next, and um, had a phone call kind of from, from someone interested in funding a further attempt to find endurance and saying, you know, he liked what kind of the trust had done. Uh, with a Scharhorst, would we like to take on a similar role for endurance? And I mean, you should you should add up the risks, shouldn't you? And you should add up what it will involve and and whatever. Uh, but I knew knew kind of Menson would not speak to me ever again if I said no. Kind of fund, uh, and there were only four trustees. I think at the time may even have been three. Um, and so immediately I said yes, yeah, we'll take it on. And so our story if you like, started um, rather casually in a way, um, in in that way. So for me, for the second expedition, another phone call from Donald. So uh, we're coming out from lockdown um, with the Weddell Sea Expedition in 2019. Um, we got there. We got the ship onto the wreck site, uh, onto mental search box, um, and we got the AUV there. Ugin 6000 AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle. So we actually got it down. We had a big open water lead, and we, uh, which I was surprised about because I knew it was going to be very dense, close packed, world spent, or two days uh, battling through the pack to get to the search site. But we got those big open water, open water lead. We got the AUV down. It's on the 10th of February 2019. Uh, put it on a long underwater duration dive. Um, 
and I think it'd been working perfectly for about at least 24 hours, uh, and then just disappeared. <laughs> so no sign of it whatsoever. Um, and yeah, then we had to bring in a search effort. Um, but the weather was really closing in. You've only got a very short period in the wet and sea when you've got the absolute summer minimum where all the ice is melted back. It's only a period of about two weeks when it's basically uh, safe enough to do to do the sort of service that we were doing for the insurance. So, um, so we lost the AV, um, and after two days of searching, um, together with the captain and our vice pilot, we had to make the decision that um, it wasn't safe for us to remain anymore, and and we felt that we've done our best to try and look at the AV. So, so, so we departed the red salt. So uh, that was, yeah, that was, that was terrible. Probably one of the worst days of my life. I'm sure it was the same for Mensa because we're both on the, on the trip together. Um, so, so I was a bit surprised to get the call from Doddles. Uh, I felt probably my career as an exhibition leader was probably over after that uh, that big failure. But uh, no, uh, Donald and the trusts uh, still had faith in me. And uh, of course, you know, when I got the call, thought about it for all of one second. And said, "I'm in," and uh, yeah, and then and then very very soon after that, Nico uh, was was brought in uh, to give us the subsea solution, and yeah, a lot of credit for the success in June 22 has got to go to Nico because it's Nico who brought in the idea of using the solid sabertooths. She she said to me many times, "But the Hogan, you had a, a Ferrari, and the Saab sabertooth is like a Land Rover." A Formula One, I said, John. Formula One. Formula One. <laughs> Fire. Formula One against the land and, and that's exactly what you want. You wanted some of those super tough, super reliable. Uh, might be slow, but did the job. Uh, and that's what we got with the Swamp Saber 2. So um, that's uh, that's how I got, got involved in the in the second expedition. So maybe maybe we could lead on to Nico then, say how Nico got involved. From the subsidy point of view... Um, unfortunately, the 2019 expedition has been unprepared, deployed solution not fitting for purpose. Especially, as John said, you do, on heist, you do not need a Formula One, you need a four wheel drive. Um, so, why I've been appointed on the engineers, been a factor of the expedition when the previous expedition was still on site facing the loss of a UV. So, I'm started to work on it and and think uh, on a way to, to, to make it successful. But I have to underline that the offshore manager lady, uh, which was in charge in 2019, Claire Samuel, made a marvelous lesson learned reports. And this report, report uh, became my holy Bible during three years to set out all the engineering issue. So I built really a, a subsidy solution based on the failure from 2019. So listen, learn. Really, uh, the listener from 2019 for me is something very important. Donald, can you tell us about the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust? How did it start and what is its purpose? Initially, kind of, there was an idea of a group of people kind of at the set up a charity that would support the museum archives in the Falkland Island. Uh, and I became involved uh, in, in that, became the kind of uh, his first chairman. Uh, Mendelssohn was one of the trustees. Um, and uh, um, 
I think I was just at the point of worrying, how the heck are we going to do everything when we don't really have any money, you know? Um, and then Menson kind of said that there was a possibility of getting funding uh, for a search for German warships sunk at the Battle of the Falklands uh, in the First World War. Uh, and uh, I kind of looked at our constitution. I thought, well, it's consistent with the constitution, but it's not the sort of thing that we uh, we thought we would be doing. Uh, but uh, we kind of had had a meeting, uh, kind of Minister and I, and discussed the, the funding. Uh, and I then kind of uh, got legal advice, uh, and the advice was, yeah, your your constitution can't cope with getting contracts with people going, you know, subsea searching and so on and so forth. It's not that it's not that it would be unlawful or anything of that sort. It's just you're not fit. You haven't set it up in that way. And the best thing to do is set up a new charity, uh, tailor made, uh, with the possibility of um, uh, of of contracting people to do searches, which would be relevant to your central purpose, which is about kind of the, the maritime history of the Falkland Islands. Uh, and it's the Falkland Islands and the neighbouring seas, uh, which is not defined clearly, um, very precisely. And I have to sometimes remind Minson it doesn't stretch up to the north of Scotland, uh, but it certainly includes the Weddell Sea. Uh, because we had a glimmer of... I, I really can't remember... I don't think we contemplated that we would have any need rule uh, in finding endurance, but I think we kind of ideas were around, and I suppose we thought we might be involved somehow. Uh, so that was envisioned in, in the Constitution. So we set up this new charity, uh, Menson, me, uh, and and two others, and um, set off in search of of the German warships, and eventually got of uh, that. Um, the experience we got on that kind of meet people think that maybe we could um, uh, maybe we could do something successful kind of for uh, to find endurance from my understanding the endurance 22 expedition was to be non-intrusive with the saber not being equipped to take samples from the wreck or the surrounding seabed so the cameras were used to undertake a high resolution survey of the wreck to find what shackleton abandoned in 1915 which included a biology lab located below decks with a microscope and glass sample jars lining the walls. You guys were curious if the jars were still there, what was inside of them, if the microscope was still there. And you were interested in what happened to Alexander Macklin's diary, which held a detailed record of what happened after the ship became trapped in the ice. And Minson, you were also curious if the ship broke in two when she hit the ocean floor. Did you find any of these items or uncover these answers when you surveyed the ship? You're right. I, I, I did kind of hope we might find some of those honey jars with all the specimens that recovered from the seabed and then a lot of other things, you know, the gramophone, all the records, um, everyday, stuff, everyday stuff like that. But in fact, we didn't really see that that much. There was a lot of crockery on the deck. There was uh, a thigh boot there, a seaman's boot from a man called Frank Wilde, who was a deputy in charge of the uh, of the endurance expedition. That was quite a surprise. Um, there's a telescope there, and there are other bits of ship's accoutrements and fittings, as you'd expect. Um, I think for myself, probably the most exciting moment is when we found three holes on the main deck, 
And we knew straight away that those three holes were what really saved their lives because once they had abandoned the ship, they very quickly realized they didn't have enough food to carry them through to when they left the ice. Uh, and then the photographer on board, a man called Hurl, he had the idea of, of going down through two foot of water, cutting holes in the deck and trying to extract food from his old cabin. And that was what they did. And through those three holes which they cut in the deck, they extracted three tons of food, which I'm convinced saved their lives. So that was an exciting moment. The ship's wheel, of course, was another. I mean, we used to joke amongst ourselves, <laughs> the ship's wheel being there and being intact. None of us really believed it would be. So when we saw that, I think that was a moment when you know the hairs on the back of our necks stood on end. But of course, in general, the preservation of the ship was what was just so outstanding. We could see the paintwork. We could count the fittings. Um, in some respects, it wasn't a great surprise because we knew there were no wood-consuming green parasites uh, in, in the Weddell Sea. But nonetheless, to see us sitting there, well proud of the seabird, in that state of preservation and sitting upright was something which... I, I can say, I think, for everybody in the team, is something that it's a sight that will never leave us. There were people um, who thought we were going after a pile of matchwood, you know, while you're bothering. So, you know, Benson's uh, judgment was certainly vindicated in terms of uh, of finding a remarkably intact hull um, uh, sitting upright. Maybe I can say something about the Antarctic Treaty, because uh, I think it's important to understand the context in which we were kind of working. Uh, the Antarctic is covered by this international kind of agreement, the Antarctic Treaty, which was established in politically difficult times uh, of the Cold War, uh, aimed essentially at um, avoiding conflict in the, in uh, of Antarctica and at announcing scientific research. And that has developed in, in different uh, different ways over the years. Uh, one of the elements uh, that uh, uh, that we needed to adhere to is that you are not allowed to. First of all, you need a permit to go and do anything in Antarctica. You need you can't just sail off and and do stuff. Kind of you know, one of the countries that is a member of the treaty um, has to give you a permit, and you've got to say what you're planning to do, etc. One of the things you're not allowed to do under the Antarctic Treaty is remove things from Antarctica, um, artifacts, if you like to use the uh, the pot word. Uh, you're allowed to remove them only if you plan to uh, conserve and restore them and put them back. Now, that's never really been tested with a ship, uh, but you can see that there's an obvious challenge kind of if you embarked on trying to, to bring something up from from a ship. So the the the, the saber tooth was simply not equipped with anything that could have bored, scraped, you know, whatever, um, because uh, we would not want to and not be allowed to uh, tamper with the wreck in that way or bring up uh, anything from it. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, Donald's completely right. So the so the wreck is protected under the Antarctic Treaty as a historic site. So. So we had a payment from the UK government, and that was very, very explicit with us, saying that we could go and film, we could survey, we could scan the wreck, and we're not allowed to take uh, anything off it, uh, and we weren't allowed to, to touch the wreck. So, uh, so we had very strict conditions. Um, so Nico and his team uh, had to 
That's why fly the same to extremely careful to make sure not to you know, once we found the wreck that we didn't damage it in in any way. Um and then and in terms of you know, trying to find some of these amazing things which are actually inside the wreck, as Milton said, the, the wreck the wreck is is all in one piece. So some of the some of the things you were talking about Clark's biological samples that are made in these you know, fairly photographic glass plates. Well they're inside the ship. And we were we didn't have the technology to get inside, and we couldn't take anything. Even if we had found that sort of material, mm-hmm. I think um, the one sort of thing of standout item to me is um, uh, Nick and his team found a flare gun, and uh, that was a, that was an amazing thing to see because um, you can relate many of these items back to the original diaries of the men. So, for example, Frank Hurley, the photographer, talked about going back to the wreck on the day that she sinks, the 21st of November 1915. We talked in his diary about firing a flare gun. It was a tribute to the ship because he, he was there with Shepperton and with Rose, and we know that she was sinking. He fires the flare gun. 107 years later, we find the flare gun on the deck. It is, it's quite incredible that you can, you know, over a century later, you can relate that diary entry to sinking that you're finding. On the wreck itself, um, yeah. So that's that's one of the things that I find quite quite incredible about all of this. And as Manson said, the, the condition the condition is incredible. It's still sort of painting the vessel. Um, uh, some of the imagery that Nico produced, you know, can see see the anchors, the chains, um, the rigging is still in place. All the vessel, the mass have collapsed, the rigging still there. Uh, and then I think perhaps. Um, one of the things which we really didn't quite expect was the amount of rural life living on the wreck. Um, now that's still something to be studied by by scientists, but there's absolutely no doubt of my mind that we have a species living on that record that had never been recorded before in the Weddell Sea. We know that. And with more study, I think we might actually find completely new species. Um, an animal and plant living on that wreck. Wow. Because this this is just such a remote location. Um, so I, I, there's still many, many more exciting discoveries to be made. As Boris, can I just uh, chip in on all of them? One significant difference between the 2019 expedition and uh, 2022 was that science had a higher priority in 2019, kind of... Uh, uh, there was more time, and and so there was a significant science program. Uh, with us, that was not the case. The science was kind of subsidiary, but it you know to do research in an area that is rarely visited and it's kind of found uh, of considerable importance. Um, you know, it figured among our objectives, but it wasn't it wasn't a high priority. Uh, but we've you know we've had a. We had a workshop in in Bremen at which people pulled together some of the things they they had done and discussed among themselves how that could go forward. We're not a science research organisation, so you know we we funded that and it will now be for people to take that forward. Uh, but um, uh, we plan kind of. Um, Nico is impatient for me to study a paper he sent us sent me uh, to. Find a way to allow scientists to have access to 
the information uh, we have. There are restraints on publishing it uh, because of the documentary and preserving the impact of, of the documentary. But access to the, the data is something that uh, that we want to, to work on and, and make make possible for uh, for scientists. And as John implies, you know, who knows what they will find? And Nico, can you tell us more about the equipment used in the search and how the survey of the wreckage was carried out? Okay, um, just, okay, come back to 2019 um, and the lesson learned, as I just mentioned. Um, to find the endurance, they, we faced three main issues. Um, the highs, first, uh, I think that all around the table made it clear that highs is really an issue. We have been obliged to build a way uh, to generate high forecast and create a new way to work for underwater over an environment led by high And this is quite uncommon. It has never been made before on fixed location. I insist that because scientists have worked on the highs before, but they drifted with ice. And it has been the first time that we made a work on a fixed location because when Manson approved the search box, it's not a box which is drifting. It's on a fixed location. So you have to live with ice. So we learned to work with ice and not against ice. And this is already a very high level technology uh, progress. And so with that, we use imageries, forecast made by a drift and noise in Germany. Then the vehicle has been built for the project, the Sabotoof. Um, as John mentioned, um, the Yugin, uh, the Yugin from Kongsberg in 2019 is a form- Formula One, but, uh, on ice, we need a four wheel drive. So we generated a wired vehicle able to comply with the condition on Red LC. And here again, we have been obliged to push Saab, the manufacturer, to agree with the way to work, which is the opposite of the subsea, uh, industry one. So it has been again fight uh, to explain to these people who is the mother and father of the vehicle that the way that they use it here is the wrong one. So long way. And then the final census. So on my company, Depression Search, we have specialized in location on Abyssal Team. Uh, we deployed a, a long frequency sonar with high range capability uh, on low frequency for the detection. And uh, we generated um, the largest uh, seabed survey of the world, 300 kilometers square on the fixed location on ice. It's a world record. Nobody made that, made that before. It, this is the size of central London, if you want. And it's this huge. This is absolutely huge. And then we arrived finally at the, at the vessel uh, metrology again. <laughs> We pushed the technology and the boundaries. Uh, we use a leader synchronized with 4K camera to produce a facsimile of the wreck, which is one millimeter resolution. So the, deploy, the technology uh, deployed here has changed the way to do subsea survey in the industry. So two years ago, when we appointed this kind of product, it was not almost not existing. And, and now the oil and gas industry is used it because they saw that uh, we made this kind of progress. So our partner made a great effort to make this real. Uh, I'm thinking to Voice uh, in Canada, and they are on partner, the 
McGill University, which pushed the boundaries of the robotics and artificial intelligence to, to make this real. So this is really, really high-level technology sub-project uh, Endurance 22. It's really, really exciting. Can you tell us about the events and efforts in February and March 2022 that led up to the discovery? Were there any hiccups along the way, or was it all smooth sailing, so to speak? I'll start again, because then I can be brief and opt out. But I suppose one thing I want to say, if if earlier I suggested that kind of in the meetings uh, for kind of 2019, uh, John had one word in his vocabulary, and that was ice, ice, ice. Uh, he'd developed by 2022 and had two words in his vocabulary. They were ice, COVID. Ice, COVID. Uh, and I think I'm right, John. If we think back, you could probably argue that it was COVID that came nearest to making us abort the mission. Uh, it's easily forgotten now, but the, the COVID affected uh the expedition in so many ways. Uh, one was the, the, the very obvious one that people who were coming to go on the expedition had to be tested, and the issues around that of logistics and reliability and so on and so forth. But also, uh, COVID had disrupted global logistics. Uh, and so, kind of, Nico and others getting material into the right place, and it included a large helicopter from the States with a very limited uh, period of time to get it there. Um, that was all complicated uh, uh, by COVID. Um, so, you know, getting to the starting line uh, was um, was a major effort. Um, and I really, I'm, it's not quite the same point, but picking up the point that Nico made, uh, I mean, the, the, the quality of the, the detailed planning, uh, that went into the exercise. And, you know, as trustees, four of us, including Menson, me, two others, Solbert and Uga, Bell Featherstone, uh, we would be on Zoom calls in the preparation stage, in particular with John and with Nico, looking at the detailed planning, uh, and, uh, John won't mind me singling out Nico for this kind of, the way in which Nico could think of what might go wrong uh, and think of a way around it and how it would be dealt with was just uh, hugely impressive. Um, so that's me on the kind of preliminary kind of phase, and I'll hand over to others who are closer to the action, frankly. Okay, yeah, so I'll come, I'll come in now. So, yeah, Donald's completely right about these issues with COVID. And, yeah, and we forget so quickly now. With how things things move on with our lives. Back in uh, at the end of twenty twenty one, we had the Omicron variant, and we were very close to actually canceling the whole expedition because it was so difficult to um, get people on site. Um, but more particularly for Nico in terms of shipping all the equipment that we needed to get to, to South Africa. So I let Nico come in. Yeah. But it, for that, and then Nico, we actually had to air freight, for example, the saber tooth. We couldn't, we couldn't, the, 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 the supply chains 
was so congested that we couldn't get shipping containers. We couldn't get a slot on a shipping vessel into South Africa on time to the expedition. So then they had to fly it in. And then when we're actually on site in Cape Town, so we've got all the equipment there, um, you know, we've then got this spectrum of COVID hanging over us. And despite our best efforts of getting people to quarantine at home, uh, we actually had one guy, and we were testing all the time, we had one guy coming to join the vessel. Uh, we were testing on the dock side before people got on onto the vessel itself. And this uh, uh, this guy, who's was a paramedic with us, very important member of the team, he tests positive on the dock side. So he's come through customs, and I'm left with a dilemma with the ship's captain about whether I bring him on board or whether I don't. Very important member of the team, because if we have to go for ice camps, he's uh, the medical support on those remote ice camps. Um, and um, yeah, there's a, I think I spent six or seven hours constantly on the phone to people like Donald, South African authorities, talking to the ship's master about whether we could or whether we couldn't bring this guy on board. And then I go and speak to Captain uh, Norwich Bengo. Norwich says, well, take, and take to the poor health authority because they could, they could have impounded the ship and said that we've got a uh, infectious uh, issue on board. You, you can't sail from Cape Town. End of expedition before we'd even left. So I'll speak to Norwich. Norwich as, um, says to the Port Health Authority, theoretically, if we had somebody with COVID on the on the key side, um, what would happen? And um, uh, the Port Health Authority said, well, uh, the regulations have just changed. President Ramaphosa had just made a presidential decree 24 hours earlier, saying that basically all COVID regulations had been put to one side in South Africa. So we're completely out of liberty to bring this person on board. And we just had a, an advisory from the Port Health to say, well, it might be a good idea for quarantine, um, which, of course, we could do. It was just pancake cabin space. So we quarantined this guy and a couple of the other people that he'd been uh, associated with or been near to. Um, and we had a 10-day sail to get from Cape Town onto the expedition site onto the search box. So, which, in which case, in, in, so we could quarantine them for 10 days, out after 10 days, perfectly okay. And we completely bubbled by that stage. But uh, yeah, we were very near right to the outset in the whole thing to just to fall apart because of because of COVID. And that's, uh, I think that was one of the, the biggest issues for me on, on the whole expedition. Um, but maybe, you know, Nico should tell you a little bit about some of the problems that he had just getting all the kits delivered to the Bashar in Cape Town. So over to you, Nico. Well, for sure, the COVID has been an issue for me. Uh, but um, over, because w- when we started to build the project, it was... Uh, 2020 and uh we we were in the middle before even before the um, the covid issue but the procurement plan that uh was absolutely tight to be on time and because building uh building the sabatus which were in sweden it's it, it, it's a journey over the planet because uh a lot of devices became for all the countries, uh, we got a lot of adjustment to do, settings to do. And finally, trials. We made trials in France. 
uh, and then faced indeed uh, uh, this COVID issue to 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 send all the equipment to South Africa. You have to understand on settings it's extremely complicated. Uh, for example, to 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 find a way to trig uh, the 4K cameras with and the um, and the leader together through the acoustic pulse for the navigation, it has been a four month walk for my engineer to find a way. So you imagine that when you have this kind of issues and in, in addition you face COVID, which is ruin your man- your procurement plan and management plan. That's a disaster. So finally, as just John mentioned, we have been obliged to charter an aircraft to 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 flew fifty tons of equipment over the planet uh, because uh, we got a two months queue by by sea. So, but it was not the end for us uh, on the subsea point of view because uh, we spent so much months and months and months to be ready. We make all these chores in fr- because in France we dive it at uh, 2400 uh, meter depths, which was the maximum depth that we found. So we, we make chores of everything, all our equipment. Everything was ready, everything was set, everything was calibrated to go straight in Antarctica. Again, a lesson learned from 2019 be ready to go uh, without calibration. <laughs> but when we arrive on site, sorry, COVID was. Definitely not my issue. Uh, we faced the unknown. I mean, uh, that's that, and that's really something that I was not prepared. Even if John mentioned so much time, uh, that we will have the unexpected in front of us. I, I was an un- undiscovered country for the subsea point of view, with, and that is really the reason why I was there because we were obliged. Every day to invent with my team new procedures, new way to think and adapt everything. All we spend millions of dollars of technology, and finally we arrive inside and, and make a last-minute decision because it was not as we expected. And believe me, I got thousands of plans, <laughs> but but finally we made new plans on site, and I think that. We have a chance to say that Endurance 22 is a real legacy of the Shackleton story because our team faced the worst. Uh, the, the most terrible has been for the sub team when we faced horrible conditions on 24-7 on bag decks, suffering temperature feelings up to minus 35 uh, due to the, to the blizzard. Sabertus, which is freezing just when the... the they 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 cross the water outside the water. The vehicle is freezing, the winch is freezing. So uh, we got failures, we got issues, and and the guys continued always with a smile, and they made it and they made it uh, with with their heart, and that has been very very good time. And they they face the worst and then deal uh, with it on, on an awesome way. That's that that's been really appreciable. I would say this, Nicholas being a bit modest, there, there was one crucial moment in the project where a decision he took absolutely saved everything. We had two brand new winch systems. They were the ultimate, the best available in the market. But Nico was unhappy with them because they'd not been tested and tried. Yes, they're brand new. Yes, they promised everything. 
And I wasn't there. The story was told to me, so it may not be totally as happened. But I was told that Nicholas saw an old 25-year-old, 15-year-old winch system in the warehouse at Saab. And he looked at it, asked if it was working. And they said, yeah, but yeah, it's 25 years old. And what Nidico saw, of course, was something had been tried and tested and worked. And he said, well, can I have that also, please? And they sort of gave it to him just to keep it happy kind of thing. And of course, where we got down there into Antarctic is one challenge after another. And both those brand new, ultra, you know, technically advanced winch systems failed. And then in the end, it was that old winch system which saw us through. That decision he made back then made us triumph when we're down there. Well, what I, I was going to say, I, I tend to use, we sometimes get asked the question, kind of, were you lucky or kind of, you know, what part did luck play? Um, and I think you have to acknowledge luck is part of it. I think we were lucky with the, uh, with the weather conditions or the conditions of the ice. Uh, but the other part of it is, you know, you could argue it's bad luck if your winch breaks down. But if you have one to put in its place that works, that's not good luck. That's planning. Yes. So you you make your luck to create the luck. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I was just going to add to what Donald said about uh, about luck, um, because what we were very fortunate with were was the ice conditions. So in 2019, we did get stuck a couple of times, not for a huge length of time at any one time, but you know, for several hours. And you know, there were tough conditions for the ship to work in. Um, in 2022, it was very different, very different. And indeed, last year and this year have been record low uh, ice uh, extensions in Antarctica. Um, and uh, in where we're where we're operating in the Weddell Sea, that she has to be hugely variable. Um, so there was a there was an element of luck there that we had a very bad ice year. Um, we might not have been able to get onto the search box, but as Nico has already said, we had umpteen different plans, including a plan to use the helicopters to fly in an ice camp, you know, perhaps up to 16, 16 nautical miles from the ice edge onto the Nigeria mm-hmm. search box and set up a camp on the ice. So we had multiple scenarios which we, which we could have used, but, but certainly uh, having um, the, the ice, very thin first-year ice, uh, was advantageous to us. Um, but yeah, ironically, that's probably extremely bad for the planet because you know, although people have been seeing low ice in the Arctic now for many years, it hasn't really affected Antarctica. Um, but now you could be seeing a tipping point in terms of climate change and ice loss in, mm. in Antarctica. Um, but for us, having that uh, low extent of ice was 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 very advantageous for us to get onto site and then to work across the search walls. What was that day like when you guys located the ship? Take us there to that day. What were you each doing? What was the feeling you had when you found it? What conversations took place amongst you? Uh, so I was very, very worried. I think we were on the day 18 of the search and we had level two days, possibly three days that we could have, we could have utilized on the ship charter. Um, so that Nick and the team were working, as he said, 
24 hours a day, seven balls a week. They were they were working super hard and they were very tired. Uh, 18 days continual effort. Um, but yeah, always with a smile on my face, always out and back there, always working. Um, but I'm worried that I'm going to have to make a call to end the search. Um, and Mental and I had talked for several days previously about getting off the ship and you know, having a, a bit of time to ourselves and you know, just thinking things through about what will come next. So we went out off the ship. It's when you're locked into a nice flow in the Weddell Sea, um, it's one and a half, two to stick out, so it's perfectly safe to walk on. And there's an iceberg nearby. So we walked out to the iceberg. And then on the on the way back, I remember saying to Minson, I think today's a good day. I think she could be underneath our feet. I don't know why I said that, because I never said that before. Um, but John, you said it with such conviction. That's what got me. Yes, yeah, John's a very grounded guy. He doesn't talk like this normally. And it's something he was saying, I feel it under my feet. But he genuinely read it and believed it. Yeah, so 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 I said that and then we, we got back to the ship going up the doorway and then all hell breaks loose. The tenoy breaks into light and it says shares and bound to the bridge, shares and bound to the bridge. Um, you know, I look at mentioning thinking, what the hell is going on here? Um, and I automatically think that uh, we've lost one of the AUVs. That's what I think, because of what happened in 2019, or maybe something worse. You know, a big accident somewhere on the ship. Something's happened on the back deck with the windshield. You know, something. Something. I actually think something bad is happening. Very bad is happening. So we rush. Once uh, and I rush up onto the bridge, and we go through the bridge door. And we, Film with documentary team are already there, uh, filming us as we come onto the bridge. And I'm thinking, God, I have to speak live on camera about losing an AAD or something even worse. And then I spot Nico sitting on the bridge, and um, Nico said, Nico's thinking, right, glove. So I thought, it is bad news. And yeah, and then Nico just gets up, shows us his iPhone, and uh, shows us. It says, gentlemen, let me introduce you to the endurance. And there's this incredible sonar picture of the wreck. And I was, I was done for, I, I couldn't speak for the next five minutes. I just, I just couldn't believe it. And then it was just like, um, everyone was whooping with joy, hugging. You know, it was uh, quite an amazing moment, quite an amazing moment. Uh, because uh, Mensa and I had no idea. They'd been going mad on the ship about an hour, maybe two hours, whilst we'd been out on the ice. And uh, uh, we'd been on a different radio channel, so we hadn't heard any chatter on board the bus. So, uh, so it was an utter, absolute surprise for us when we saw Nico with his iPhone. Incredible. And Nico, do you want to share when you saw it and anyone else and what they were doing that day as well? Yeah, on my side, I was on heavy duty. Uh, with quite low sleep, low level of sleep. So we arrived on the 18th, as just mentioned, and covered already 80% of the search box. So I was concerned and focused, uh, I was concerned on time for, uh, on the time to, to optimize remaining time, you know. I was really focused on that, how to optimize the remaining time because I was aware that maybe two day, in two days it would be over. So I've been called by my colleague, GC, the offshore manager. 
that they got the ultimate incredible sonar target signature. So I urgently joined at the top side shelter on the back deck. You have to know that we're wearing inside small shelter to be ready to build camp on ice. So that doesn't why we go to this tiny container on the back deck ready to be fly. So we got space only for three people inside. So I saw her and it was her, obviously. I, so first step was to produce the high, high sonar frequency uh, signature to confirm the wreck that we made immediately. And then the Ruby, the AUV pilot, uh, asked it to urgently join back the surface because the, the, the battery levels was too low on the vehicle. But I refused and asked it to conduct a visual confirmation. And I said to the guys, no woods, no wrecks. So uh, the team has bring back the sabotage on the wreck and we joined her per, uh, on midship per port side and fly over the main deck uh, and then head of dive uh, uh, as the level of battery was extremely low. By the way, we made a, we made a, a dead vehicle recovery on this dive because of the vehicle was absolutely empty and the guy was very upset about me. But the level of upset was compensated by the way that we find we find the most fabulous wrecks. So uh, the first video of the wreck is maybe 20 to 30 seconds. Uh, and very, very low, low quality, but we got her. So then I joined the bridge and to add the ice pilot to call back Manson and John. And you know the story when they came back and I introduced them to the endurance. It was a good day. <laughs> Imagine so. And, and I would like to underline something which is very important because since the first day Manson said this, this wreck is in a single piece. And this information led us uh, on the sonar analyst point of view, uh, on the way to search endurance. Uh, and she is indeed in a single piece. Uh, uh, she was precisely how Manson said we will find her. Manson, do you want to share anyone else? Um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, I mean, I had the same reaction as John did. Uh, when they were first demanding our presence on the bridge immediately, I thought something terrible happened. Like John, my first thought was that we'd lost the vehicle like three years before. And I think speak for myself, that was probably the most wretched moment in my life. And I thought, oh my God, here we go again. And then as we were rushing to the bridge, I did actually catch sight of one of the French data analysts standing in one of the doorways there. And he was smiling from ear to ear. And at that moment, I suddenly thought, okay, if we've lost a vehicle or something bad has happened, he would not be smiling. But still, you know, I just remember tumbling out of the bridge with John, and there's Nico, there's the skipper at the console, and then Nico produces this battle. He thrusts us right up at us, and he goes, gentlemen, let me introduce you to the endurance. And as John said, it was just utterly explosive, you know, just sunburst of, of, of um, undiluted, euphoria or whatever, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, it's the kind of thing you'll you never forget and will never be repeated in your life. Did you guys celebrate later that night? I remember music being played very, very late because my cabin was right next to the saloon. And I remember until three o'clock in the morning, there was guitar playing and music going on. So the celebrations went on very late indeed. I think we opened the bar, didn't we, John? I can't remember. No, I don't. No, no, we didn't. 
now. So if you remember, later. yeah, it was later because we, we got to, uh, because the subsea and the subsea theme, as Nick has explained, we, we got that. We're not sure what, what is. I think you said it's like ninety second click of the ship. So and and then the batteries went, and the guys had to do dead vehicle recovery, which is super difficult to do. So there's no battery power left in the vehicle, so they're using the chubber to bring it back up to the surface. So, um, uh, so the guys brought the vehicle back up, and then they had to change payload, put on the cameras, um, do, do the film survey with the camera survey, photographic survey, change payload again to put the uh, laser scanner on. So there was still a huge amount of work to do. So, uh, um, so some of the scientists might have been celebrating in the bar, um, Menston, but not the yeah, not the back deck guys. Not the back. I mean, the back deck guys were absolutely amazing. We we had temperatures down to minus forty, minus fifty, and that is seriously dangerous stuff. Uh, you know, we had one guy there with his eyelids frozen, closed. I've lost two teeth as a result of that. You know, it was really nasty stuff. And these guys, as Nico said, kept smiling throughout. They're, they were so padded up, we couldn't recognize who they were. You know, but they just kept going, kept going. It was incredible. And, you know, we had we had a support team there just to help them getting food, warm drinks, but they never stopped. Yeah, so, so just to clarify on that, so the conditions were brewed on the back deck. It's a... Uh, our lowest temperature recorded was about minus 15 to minus 18. But when you've got wind chill, which the guys on the back deck were experiencing, 20 to 30 knots blowing on the back deck, it's completely open. That's when it can be very, very tough on them. And uh, yeah, that, you know, because they're working very long hours, had to make sure that uh, they were properly fed and watered and that, you know, they. If they were getting cold, they were coming back back in inside the ship to warm up before going back out again. Um, so yeah, what it, the, the condition the conditions were were very difficult, particularly because then we're moving towards the end of the season. Um, we've got a lot of uh, daylight's getting a lot shorter, temperatures are dropping. Um, at the same time, we've also got those open water leads which we had when we first arrived on site are beginning to freeze over. So. Yeah, everything is against Nico's team to complete everything in the time that they had, and they just—they they were just magnificent, absolutely magnificent to complete that job in that time after we found the wreck, and they were just super focused, laser focused on completing that job. They were magnificent. My mind is, is a year ago right now, uh, but the the what we call the archaeological inspection dive, where we actually looked at the ship through the 4K cameras in real time. I mean, that was just unbelievable. Because we approached the ship from the stern, and the first thing we saw was the rudder laying in the mud under the tuck of the stern. And I didn't expect to see that, because twice in the diaries it said that when the, when the ice tore off the rudder, that the rudder was gone. The captain himself said it. It was gone, the rudder. Yep, there it was. And then as we elevated, there was the stern of the ship, and there we saw, you know, the ship's name in capital letters arced across the stern, uh, uh, and there was the five-pointed star uh, after the uh, the Polaris, after which the ship was originally named. And as we came up higher, we, we passed up and over the taffrail, and then we could 
see down into the the well deck, the deck at the very stern of the ship. And that was utterly incredible because there was the ship's wheel absolutely uh, intact. And just after that was the steering mechanism, there was the binnacle, and there was a companionway which took you down to the accommodation deck within the poop. And that was unbelievable. We could see pigeonholes there where the ship's flags had been kept. But I think for all of us, probably the moment which was just uh, most mind-blowing of all was seeing the two portholes to Shackleton's cabin and knowing that on the other side of that wall, between those two cabins, was fixed a picture frame. And within that picture frame, there was Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, and we knew it was still there. We knew it was still legible. I mean, these are moments, you know, for, for anybody. Just have, you don't have to be an archaeologist to, 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 to imagine how we all felt at that time. My reaction was kind of completely different. I was kind of sitting in a, a warm house in the south of England, uh, obviously thinking every minute of the day about Nico and his team freezing cold on the back. Uh, but we were running out of time uh, on the charter. Uh, and so I had started talking to our um, public relations people. Uh, what are we going to say if the news comes back, end of expedition, um, we haven't found the wreck? Uh, so we drafted uh, a press release. I don't, I don't know if anyone else kind of almost call has seen it. Um, and it said, what a magnificent achievement. We've done amazing science. I suspect we said reach the world as the most outstanding communications kind of as a all uh, we failed to find the wreck uh, and and move on and that was kind of what we were preparing our minds uh, to deal with and then my reaction when I got the news of of the discovery maybe it's partly because Scotsmen don't get kind of too enthusiastic about things you know um, but actually more seriously it was relief uh, uh, at a number of levels. Uh, I mean, first of all, this was an expedition that had just kind of succeeded uh, and there'd been no injuries, no accidents of any um, significance. Uh, it was relief because of how people would have felt who'd been on a second failed expedition. I mean, one failure is one thing, you learn lessons, but to come back again and say we'd failed, that was going to be really difficult um, for people. Um, and not just the people on the ship, but people back home who supported, who were engaged or whatever would be, you know, deflated. But here was success, which was kind of fantastic. And things had just gone, uh, so well. So I should have been more enthusiastic, <laughs> but relief actually, uh, for everyone at the success they'd achieved. That, that kind of was my feeling. And Tim, what was your experience? Great. Well, it was my charge the whole time to share the narrative of this expedition with the 33,000 kids who are following from all over the world. And I was at the same time sort of parallel to Donald thinking, how does this story end? Time was, it was clicking down. You know, kids in some way is, are expecting a fairy tale ending. And, uh, you know, if we couldn't give it to them, we had to sort of, you know, create this, this lesson, which is a really valuable lesson in the, the Explorer community that it was worth the effort because we learned you know, so much about the dynamics of the Weddell Sea ice. We learned, you know, all of these invaluable things that help us better understand the Weddell Sea. Yes, in that scenario, we haven't found the wreck yet. 
So I was contemplating those those messages and and how we could make this a real learning experience for the kids who are following. And the moment I heard that the wreck had been found, you know, you switch into just a completely different mode. I, I get this incredible joy and responsibility of sharing this incredible news with kids who are deeply invested in this expedition, who have gotten to know all the characters, so to speak, uh, on the ship and you know, supporting the expedition and to help them feel the joy uh, and relief that was happening on the ship. Uh, I went into planning mode, sort of working under the restraints that uh, we couldn't quite announce it to the world yet. What is the educational value of this discovery? How are you sharing your findings with the public, including schools and future generations? And Tim, if you don't mind also telling us about the Reach the World Virtual Exchange Expedition that streamed to classrooms live from Antarctica. Yeah, I think it's valuable to start by recognizing that the interest on part of the trusts and everybody here in making education a part, a big central part of this expedition was really revolutionary. This something hasn't happened on this level with an expedition ever. This is was the world's largest virtual exchange with an expedition in it that was due in huge part to the prioritization of education as part of this expedition. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to make it to the ship without getting COVID, but we were making plans on a parallel basis. I was like double masking on my flight from New Jersey to Cape Town, just keeping my fingers crossed. Um, but the the raw elements of storytelling in this expedition are clear. You've heard it from everybody on this call already that, you know, we have lessons of engineering and testing and breaking and fixing from Nico and his crew. We have lessons of leadership from John and his expedition planning. We have primary source or primary document resource research and, you know, looking back a hundred years for clues to the shipwreck from Mensen. And there were stories like that for every member of this expedition, every member of the crew of the SA Gullis too. And it was really my job to just share that story with kids and make them feel like they were on the S.A. Agalis, part of this adventure with us. And part of the the way that was possible is great uh, satellite communications aboard the, the S.A. Agalis 2. We did uh, every weekday when kids were in school, we did a live stream. Uh, every member of this call right here in the midst of what is surely a career-defining moment for all of you in this search took the time to stop and loop kids in and answer all their questions. I mean, I remember very fondly a live stream I did with John from the top deck of the SA Gullis 2, where we were probably right over the endurance and we didn't know it yet. And, you know, and he's the center of this expedition in terms of the leadership and the planning, and he is taking the time to stop and answer all those wild questions kids have about the Weddell Sea and, and what it takes to lead an expedition. And that is was 100% the attitude of everybody on the expedition. It created this really rich and long-lasting educational resource about WLC wildlife, um, engineering, problem-solving, what it's like to live and work on a marine vessel, uh, what it's like to conduct a marine archaeological search. Um, all of these aspects uh, of the expedition just came to life through this sort of storytelling. And I'll share one last thing. When we got on the ship, uh, there were some protocols in place for spacing at, at meals where, you know, we're not eating very densely. We're spaced out a little bit and meal times were cut short. So there were two sittings for each meal. 
And everybody on the ship, I came to realize, is just truly exceptional in, in at least one way. They had one thing that they were super passionate about, and they had brought that to this expedition. And we had maybe 20 minutes to eat this delicious food that was coming out of the kitchen of the SA Gulls, too. And I don't think I finished a single meal for maybe the first two weeks because it was like speed dating with the most interesting people <laughs> in the world. They all, you know, like you don't know what it is when you get seated randomly next to somebody and then they start talking and you're thinking, unbelievable. I have this amazing access to these experts, passionate experts who have so much potential to inspire kids. And I would hope that through the work that, that Reach the World did and our live streams and the written articles uh, that were part of the virtual exchange, we translated all that expertise and enthusiasm and excitement about the world around us, you know shipwreck finding was great was a great ending to the story but everything else that happened in between just inspired in ways that i don't think we still fully understand uh the 33,000 kids in 26 countries who followed this expedition when i was a kid in the 1980s uh titanic was discovered i think it was 86 it was just obsessed with titanic if we had had something like that uh to see you know live stream every day the search for the titanic it would have had a huge impact so I know that you usually impacted future scientists and explorers, so thank you for doing that. Well, I just want to, as an example of, of what a great job uh, Tim Tim did, he, he mentioned kind of that he wanted the kids kind of uh, to feel that they were on a gullers too. And I loved the story from one of the teachers in, in the States, and kind of when he, the news came out, one of the students rushed up to her and said, we found endurance. We signed endurance. I thought that was just extraordinary. Jeez, it was quite blown away by all that. But just curious, are you still uh, in, in touch with any of the same kids? Almost on a daily basis, Menson. I think we've got everyone. We're all here. You know, we're coming up on the anniversary of the the discovery of endurance, and we have not only last academic year students who are still sort of reeling from this experience, but we have. A whole new set of kids who are discovering the the live stream recordings, the written articles that came from the ship, um, and those sorts of resources just continue to inspire through through word of mouth and the other efforts of the trust to keep spreading the word. Um, yes, yeah, I'm. I hear from kids all, all the time. I I have enjoyed in many ways my minor celebrity of just having random kids come up to me in Chicago and say, "Hey, you're Tim." <laughs> and my family sort of rolls their eyes. Uh, but, you know, to be in for something like that uh, amongst that group, I consider to be a really great honor. Are there any future visits planned to endurance? What is the destiny of Shackleton's ship at the bottom of the Weddell Sea? There's a thing called age. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think, I think uh, well, it's interesting when you say put it like that, the work done. Um, I had given absolutely no thought uh, to the implications, frankly, for the trust, or to be brutal for me personally, uh, if these guys found the wreck. I mean, I thought I would just sink back into well-earned retirement and join my Shackleton whiskey. Uh, but of course, there's a tremendous amount going on. Uh, the preparation of a documentary, kind of the imminent release of five educational videos, kind of which will uh, will be coming out. Um, Kind of very very soon, and 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 a host of other stuff around uh, uh, potentially exhibitions and books and so on and so forth. So there's a heck of a lot of activity ongoing, 
uh, and the story is a global one that will kind of keep um, you know keep going on. Um, but at a certain point, without my direct engagement, thank you. Has there been any talk about bringing the ship up from the ocean floor and putting it in a museum? Well, I, I think kind of the, 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 given what I was saying earlier about kind of artifacts in uh, in Antarctica, quite apart from kind of cost and viability, uh, I think most kind of people would say now, given the quality of the, the the kind of survey work that's been done and the quality of the data that can then be uh, reproduced or kind of in one way or another in museums large and small or whatever that. Truly, is the, the the sensible thing rather than try to raise a um, a wooden wreck at huge kind of uh, expense. Most of you have been dedicated explorers for decades now, but how has this particular discovery changed your life and career? Have you felt an impact from it? I, well, I've always been the first. So this will be my last first, as it were. But it's slightly unrealistic in my case to speak about career. I suppose looking at some um, how many birthdays I've had, but uh, but huge impact that's that's for sure. Um, and um, the people of my sort of vintage, you kind of you're often talking about retirement. How do you handle, you know, coming out of full time employment with the daily demands and and so on and so forth? And part of the answer is to find projects that are genuinely engaging uh, of time and kind of uh, of of the brain, and so. For sure, kind of that's kind of impacted uh, uh, impacted me, and it's been just an extraordinary privilege to uh, or a privilege to be part of it. I will say, Donald, but for me, um, yeah, it's yeah, going to be a, a career highlight. You can't get much bigger than if you're working in Antarctica to have got into the world to be uh, where so so few people have ever been. Um, to be able to walk on sails, as Shepardson did over 100 years ago, you know, that's an enormous privilege. And to have done it with such an amazing bunch of people, because it was a huge team effort. Huge team effort. 65 members of the expedition team, and she had 45 officers and crew on the goodest two, and everyone had a vital part to play. And so it was a massive international team effort to find the record. So, so it was a real privilege to be able to, to lead such an exceptional team. So that's simple words, yeah. I'll never forget, I'll never forget the people uh, on the expedition. Um, and then I think the, the other um, major impact on me has been working with Tim and reach the world and being able to communicate with so many, so many kids uh, and with kids and students who I would never have believed would have been interested in Shackleton and endurance. So Tim hasn't mentioned, but we've, I've had a, a special link with uh, public school number one of leadership and creativity in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, they they followed the expedition right from the outset. Um, I had the privilege to then meet them in New York at the end of last year, um, and it's quite clear to me that you know through our expedition. Their lives have been changed. Um, that they now think of science and technology, uh, exploration, geography, and as and as that as possible careers for them, where perhaps they had never thought of that before. And that a really telling comment is that I gave a, a school talk, and there were some uh, some parents of some kids that they they'd heard so much from the kids about 
about Tim and his presentations and the expedition. But the parents came, and one of the parents came up to me afterwards and said, as a result of you enthralling and exciting my kids about science and technology, I'm going to give up my job as an office administrator. I'm going to retrain to be a science teacher. Well, I thought, that's, that's incredible. That's the impact that this sudden expedition can have. So I think, yeah, so it's, it's the people and then the impact that we've had on real people. Um, yeah, those, those were yeah. two things I always remember the team, the blessed team effort it was, and then the impact that we, we've had on next generation and what they might be able to achieve as a result of them hearing about us and getting enthusiastic about it. Vincent, how about you? Did it, have you felt an impact from this? Well, this was the greatest wreck hunt that has ever been. And to be, to be part of this incredible team that succeeded in finding the so-called unreachable endurance. I mean, it's the pinnacle of my career as, as a maritime archaeologist. I just feel so grateful beyond words to be part of this. And yes, it has upended my life, really. Uh, and, you know, as Donald says, you know, he and I are, you know, sort of, there's a lot less ahead of us than there is behind. And for this to happen at our stage in life, I think is just wonderful, something we appreciate and relish and will do forever. I'm sure for you, it feels even more full circle with your, I think you said your great-grandfather having hosted Shackleton uh, over 100 years ago. That's, that's pretty amazing. Nico, how about you? Have you felt an impact? Well, it's sad to talk about these beautiful wordings that all these gentlemen made. Um, I have maybe to say first that I was so much focused on my duty uh, that I didn't realize that marvelous work that people like Tim made with, uh, with the kids. And after the discovery, I just wake up and said, wow, wow, I cannot believe it. And that, frankly, I got the privilege to let the subsea discovery of the only wreck on this planet that is most important than the, Titan- the Titanic. So, well, I feel, I feel like Armstrong will work at first on the moon. So, uh, frankly, um, I like even to say that uh, I have been the Werner von Braun who built the rocket computer church trajectory that allowed our endurance 22 astronauts team to land safely on their moon, the endurance. So thanks to the all to, 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 to all the astronauts, all of them were absolutely important for this project. You know, Rick, Nick, uh, Nick was right. Uh, I've said before that one of the incredible things about this project was that it was a bit like the moonshot, a bit like the human genome project, a bit like the Manhattan project, by which I mean a group of highly trained technicians were brought together to crack a problem. And in the end, they all succeeded. Mm. It did in the end too. And there were 66 people on your crew, correct? There was 60, 65 on the expedition team. 65 were on the expedition team to engineers, technicians, uh, scientists, film crew, educator, okay. uh, Tim, doctor, a um, whole range of different professions. Yet everyone absolutely um, brilliant. 
the vast majority actually handpicked either by by me or by Nico to prolong the expedition. So uh, yeah, brilliant team. And then we had forty five crew uh, from the SA Gullis Two, uh, all South African. Um, mm. I think I think I think we had fourteen different nationalities on board. It, it, it really was a, a multi-national effort. Tim, tell me uh, if you felt an impact from this. It sounds like you have with the, with all the kids you worked with. I, you know, I, I escaped a lot of the media attention that followed the, the discovery of the wreck and really got to, like, just share the joy and excitement with the kids who were following. And that has been such a roller coaster of, of happiness, you know, only upward upward leading roller coaster um i unfortunately think i'm ruined for all future expeditions because when you start uh with this as your first major expedition i don't know where you go from there but it is it is a story that that you know can't be beat and has been so much fun to tell and i think i'll tell it for the rest of my life uh to to kids or whoever will listen um it's, I, don't, I don't know that you can do any anything bigger or better than that, but there's all sorts of uh, other sort of, you know, the, the investment in this sort of education program, the proof of concept that it can be done from what is the world's most remote, hardest to reach place, one of them on the earth, is just total proof that you can connect kids with field scientists and expeditions wherever they may be around the world and and use these valuable professional resources uh, experiences uh, to inspire the next generation of kids who are going to be doing those jobs and most likely be deeply involved in preserving our planet. Have there been any books written or documentaries released about the Endurance 22 expedition that our listeners might be interested in? When we started out, kind of the what you might call the media side, including education outreach, was kind of a major plank, a major part of uh, of the planning. And um, I I kind of remember uh, an early discussion kind of around the funding and what things would cost and so on, uh, when it was suggested that the aim should be a documentary that would be interest to someone of the caliber of Disney uh, and that we should use cutting-edge social media and other things. And I thought, you're talking to a 73-year-old retired bureaucrat here, uh, but we do indeed have uh, our shaping up for kind of a documentary by Disney, Annette Geo, uh, which um, uh, was originally, the original agreement was that there would be a TV documentary coming out in the, uh, the fall um, of 2022, uh, but they have uh, upped their investment and upped their ambition, uh, which means it'll be a bit slower, but bigger and better, uh, and it's a considerable resource they're putting into it. So that's kind of something exciting to look forward to. Uh, but also there was the output um, during the expedition by podcast, by other means, and uh, a lasting legacy, I think also these five uh, educational videos that, uh, that will come out. So it was a big kind of, um, you know, the media, whole media side, if you will, uh, was, uh, you know, it was really important. And once, I mean, a small point, maybe, but uh, one difference again, 2019, 2022, uh, Reach the World were involved in 2019. So kind of, you know, we were able to see what they were capable of uh, as we were putting together the uh, the plans for 2022. But one big difference was to say to Reach the World, send one of your own people full time. 
so that that kind of be can can be uh, uh, done in a, in a more ambitious way. What are each of you working on at the moment? Any new expeditions or projects coming up? Well, I'm a maritime archaeologist, which means you always got other projects in the offing. So yeah, we are working on. I am working with with amazing people on several other projects, but none of them are polar. Uh, just uh, other routine wreck, wreck projects. Uh, well, there's still an awful lot to wrap up on this current expedition just to do. So, uh, Donald's already mentioned the, the documentary, but we're also working with the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust to develop a conservation plan for the wreck. So, it's protected going forward uh, and for future generations. So, that's to get a lot of work. And um, for me, um, I routinely do polar expeditions. So I went to the Arctic in the last year and I'll be going back to Antarctica. Slightly different type of venture I've been going with the Scott Polar Research Institute. Um, as I've basically a lecturer guide with them, but uh, I'll be good to get back to Antarctica. Uh, and what I'm hoping there is that uh, I might finally get the opportunity to go ashore at Elephant Island. Elephant Island, absolutely appreciated ships and stories with them. And then lived for so many months, also waiting to be rescued. Um, I've sailed past it, as I mentioned right at the start, but I've never managed to get a shoot, So I'd love to be able to do that maybe maybe next year. So that's uh, what's in store for me. On my side, I'm not over with endurance because I'm still working to produce um, the data on post-processing. So we are, we are almost over but we are still producing amazing upgrade on the quality of the images. The digital terra model is absolutely amazing now. Um, we are uh, at a level that uh, I think that very soon you may have VR glasses and work on the deck of the endurance by 3,000 meter depths. So it's coming soon, very soon. Uh, so uh, it's quite exciting. And in addition, I'm working on a new robotics project for the subsea industry. Uh, so I'm working with um, uh, the company Ocean Infinity, and they are building a fleet of coolest vessels for the subsea activities. So sorry, guys, this is the end of Explorer. Robots is coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Tim? Uh, um, in, in the past year, I think I, I've led maybe four or five other virtual exchange expeditions with different field scientists and expeditions around the world. We're continuing to use this model of, of virtual exchange, which is live video broadcasts and written articles from the field to inspire as many kids as possible to uh, engage with places they've never thought about uh, before, perhaps, and learn about STEM careers and be more curious about the world around them. So. I don't expect that that will will end anytime soon, but I don't think uh, my my next onboard adventure like this uh, is right around the corner. I'm a facilitator from from Sweet Home, Chicago. And Donald, how about you? I think there are various elements of the endurance project that still will engage the trust, and so we need to be involved with them. Uh, but also, kind of, it's um, uh, got to pay attention to the sustainability of the future of the trust itself and uh, kind of what's it going to be doing in the future and who will be the trustees and kind of, you know, one day we need to find a new chairman and so on and so forth. So these are important for charities. 
uh, you don't want to kind of be so engaged in a particular success that suddenly, you know, that's over and and you've not prepared the way for, for others to take the trust forward. So that's quite an important task moving forward. Lastly, do each of you have a book, film, or documentary recommendation, something that our listeners can dive into beyond this episode? Yes. Lansing's book, Endurance. It was written in 1959. It's still available. It's never been out of print. I first read it in the 60s when I was a teenager in my mother's bookshop. It was a huge inspiration to me. And I recommend it to anybody to this day. I, I fully agree with Mensa that was on my list, the Lansing book. Uh, it's a fascinating read because the Lansing wrote it. There's still a couple of guys were still living from the original Jurians crew. So he was able to interview them for the book. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend Lansing's book. I'd also, in terms of uh, if you want something to watch on the TV, um, there's a very good uh, Shackleton book entry starring Kevin Kenneth Branagh, the English actor, uh, came out in 2002. It's just called Shackleton. It's a good part um, on film. Uh, that's actually, it's very historically accurate. Um, and I love that film. If you if you want something to watch on the TV, watch Shackleton, go for that. Can't come to prove on that beyond saying we have a great documentary in 20. 20- Stuckley, yeah. That, that. <laughs> right. an, Oscar, an Oscar winner. <laughs> we hope, yeah. Maybe on my side, I will be going outside the Shackleton story. Sorry for that. But in June 22, my team has discovered on board the submarine of the famous explorer Victor Vescovo, the USS Samuel B. Roberts, the deepest wreck of the world, 6,800 meter depths. So there is a nice documentary on YouTube, I think, called Wrecks of Samuel showing how Victor has relocated the wreck. So for my team and high, 2022 is a a great year with a double discovery, pushing subsea technology on the ultimate boundaries. So Wreck of Summer documentary will allow the audience to wait the marvelous endurance one uh, by showing subsea operations uh, and how we conduct it. (laughs) Very diplomatic, Nico. Thank you. (laughs) I, I have a double star in 2022, so... <laughs> and Tim, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Uh, I will recommend something for the younger listeners and the parents who uh, want a chance for their kids to relive this excitement that we've been talking about today. Uh, all of the educational resources from the virtual exchange around the Endurance 22 expedition are online. They're free. Uh, they're ready to go on demand um, at explore.reachtheworld.org. Uh, you can jump in from a STEM perspective. You can jump in from an Antarctic wildlife perspective. You can jump in from a marine biology perspective. You can sort of choose your own adventure and really relive all of these amazing stories that we talked about and meet a number of the expedition team and crew uh, and their incredible, rehear their stories and sort of live that experience alongside us all. To all you listeners, you can read more about the Endurance 22 expedition at www.endurance22.org. Again, I also highly recommend reading Alfred Lansing's classic book, Endurance, if you haven't already. Uh, Be sure to check out the Shackleton Museum in Ireland at www.shackletonmuseum.com. They have wonderful events and resources year-round to commemorate Shackleton's legacy in the Endurance expedition. 
Donald, John, Minson, Nico, and Tim, thank you for taking time to be with us here at the Roundtable tonight. It was an absolute honor, and I wish each of you the best in all your endeavors of exploration. Jonathan, thank you for your interest. Thank you. It was good to see Thanks, Jonathan. See you guys. Good to see you. Okay. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at the Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com. 